This is Stephen J. Schwartz here with Peter Leonard. I am currently promoting a collection of uh, short essays by authors who have sold their books to Hollywood and have suffered the tragedies that occur thereafter. The book is called Hollywood Versus the Author. I'm also the author of the LA Times bestselling novels Boulevard and Beat, which are kind of dark mystery novels. Passing it over to you, Peter. I am Peter Leonard promoting my new book, Raylan Goes to Detroit, based on my father, Elmore Leonard's character, who appeared in uh, three novels and a short story and uh, was the main character in a, in a, a six-season TV series, Justified. All right. Hey, first, Peter, I just want to say I'm very, very honored to be here talking to you. I think it's very, very cool that we're on here together, and, and I, I, I'm just happy to be here, my friend. I feel the same way. I have read uh, your material. I have read parts of Boulevard and Beat, and it's it's really great writing. It's outstanding writing. And the your ability to depict the street scenes, uh, all the action, the vivid uh interesting scenes, black and whites and motorcycles and trick decoys and circuit girls and the, and the cruisers in their Range Rovers, BMWs and Jags. This is, you put, you put me in the scene and in the midst of it all, I, what kind of interesting is Hollywood high, you know, what a contrast that is. Yeah, that, that is a, thank you so much for, for your kind words. It means uh, everything in the world to me, Peter. It's funny that you just say Hollywood high because that's, that's an interesting kind of segue just to Hollywood in general, is that Hollywood itself is like a high school. And, you know, when you think about making films in Hollywood or, or getting a book deal and an adaptation to film or TV, Hollywood, as I think it was Martin Mull said, Hollywood is high school with money. And you have to deal with all that kind of chaos. And um, and I'm wondering, and you've been you've written what eight novels, I believe, so far? Yeah, eight published, um, and I just finished the ninth. Okay. So I've been busy. So in, in, in all that time, and, and I know you've been doing this full-time for a little while now, have you had the opportunity to sell your, your film or, or TV rights? I have had two books optioned, but the, okay. the deal ultimate, deals ultimately fell through. And yeah. I've, I've We're, currently actually wrote a, uh, a five-episode series on one of the books that I wrote called Voices of the Dead, and that's in the hands of a studio right now. They're they're trying to decide if they want to buy it. So, did you write did you write the the spec, you know, the pilot for that, or were these was this basically a treatment or a pitch for the series? I wrote five scripts. I wrote what I think is the first season, and I just thought okay. I'm going to do it because what I've learned is that nobody in Hollywood reads novels, and and I think. <laughs> Few people even read scripts. It's the it's the the concept. You know way more about it than I do. It, it's it's very painful, actually, because you are you are absolutely right. Nobody nobody reads novels. You're lucky if they'll read coverage. I mean, that's pretty much you know your novel comes into a to a uh, production company, and you know the the intern or the assistant or the story editor gets a shot to to read it over the next few days while people are you know about to bid on it this is if you're lucky this is usually within the first week you know or two that your book is released and then someone you know is hired to write uh, basically a page and a half of a synopsis and a half a page of comments and that's called the coverage and based on the coverage you know there will be this reader or intern or story editor will, will check off a box that says 
you know, consider um, or pass. So pass means that it's not right for their company and consider means, hey, maybe someone else should take a look at this, right? And, uh, and, and you know, the, the executive above that person and all the way up to the producer you know, at the company will, will read the coverage and, and maybe, you know, some higher executive will, will read your book in the next couple of days, you know, kind of fast track it. And then somebody will, will make that, will go for it. If, if everyone passes within the first couple of weeks, then it goes on that long train uh, where, you know, you, you got to find somebody who really becomes a fan and champions it and reads your work. And, and then it can, you know, you can go through that whole process. But, you know, your experience is very much par for the course. Most properties come in and, and they, they, they don't, you know, they don't sell right away or they get optioned. Um, how long was your option? Like a year option? It was optioned project. for uh, a year and then another year. Yeah. Okay. I experienced pretty much the same thing you did too with, with Boulevard and Beat. But yeah, so it gets optioned for a certain amount of time. And then, you know, usually within that year, that production company will have had the opportunity to get it out there and get attachments, you know, you know, get the screenwriter attached uh, or, or showrunner, more actors or directors attached. And, and a year should be plenty of time. Sometimes they want to hold on to the property a little bit longer. They're maybe getting some momentum and then they renew the option. It doesn't cost them that much. I mean, an option, you know, they can pay you an option anywhere from a dollar to $20,000 or, or something in that range. And when they do the renewal, then they pay you maybe half of that or so, even if it's for a year. My, I, my books were optioned for a year and then renewed for another six months. And then they came back to me and, you know, uh, and then we're in the, the process of what I tell authors to do is just, write another book, you know, keep writing your books because the more books that you write, the more opportunities you have for this thing to happen again and, and, and to get something to go more quickly. But, you know, uh, Tess Gerritsen, uh, who has an essay in, in Hollywood, was the author, I think it took like 15 years or so before the Isolde and Isles uh, series uh, came into being, you know, and I think it went through a number right. of different options, you know, and, and, and turnarounds, and then ultimately, you know, someone... And the next generation, you know, discovered her work and said, you know, this would be a great TV series. And boom, you know, suddenly the mojo is, has occurred and, and it's all happening. Right. There's, and, and there's a, a thirst for properties right now with TV and it's, it's uh, glory days. So, I mean, I think it's yeah. easier perhaps in the past couple of years. But uh, it, my father used to talk about this, too, how he would go to Hollywood and he'd meet with a producer and one example, uh, a producer said to him, uh, I'd like a, uh, a script just like The French Connection, but different. Right, right. Yeah. But different. Yeah. Or he would, write oh, a, he would write a script based on a novel that he wrote, and the producer would say, this is just like the book. You know, what are we paying you for? So wow. heard, you know, I've heard stories uh, since I was a little kid, and uh, they seem uh, nonsensical, you know. Yeah, those are, those are, they, they never, ever since like, ever since poor writers were dragged into Hollywood and, you know, seeking money and fame, this has been going on. And it's been like this since what makes Sammy run, you know, all the way to the present. I, I had an interesting experience after, after my options ran out for Boulevard and Bead, I kind of took another, another tack and I got a, a showrunner guy I knew um, kind of from a different era and another director. And we went around, we did a pretty solid pitch and we had some, some visual aids, you know, the director had created them some scenes from Bad Lieutenant and Taxi Driver and all the films that were kind of like the tone of, of my books. And, and we went out and did pitching and HBO was one of the ones places we pitched and, you know, got passed on all of those. 
And then a buddy of mine, you know, like a month later, I have a friend who's a screenwriter who was at HBO and he was pitching his own stuff. And the executive he was talking to said, you know what, you need to come up with something that's unique, something that's interesting, something we haven't seen before. Like, you know, maybe a vice cop, you know, an LAPD cop who is a sex addict and he's struggling with his sex addiction. You know, that's unique. That's different. And, and my buddy said, that's my friend's novel. <laughs> and the guy said, oh, I'm not saying that you should write that. Yeah, just something like that. And, you know, and this is the guy that passed on the project. <laughs> Unbelievable. And he's suggesting to other writers that they need to do something unique like that. So there's just no sense to it, right? Yeah. I got to hand it to you. Uh, Hayden Glass is a very unique, interesting, fascinating character. And uh, I've never, you know, read a detective novel where the de a detective was addicted to sex. And, and, and listen, to, uh, going into that sordid world that you wrote is really something. You know, you take the reader to places that they've never been before. And I think that's the hallmark of a good writer. Well, again, thank you so much, Peter. And and I, I wish I could reciprocate, but I haven't read. Unfortunately, I haven't read your work, and, and it's kind of driving me crazy. Now I'm, I'm going to be. Uh, oftentimes, when we get these interview opportunities, we 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 get them before we have enough time to really dive into to our right. partners. Sure. Oh, I understand. And, and, yeah. and I really apologize for that, but I, I will be reading it, you know, soon. But I, again, I wish I could reciprocate, and I thank you very much for those comments. A lot of that, you know, is based on research. I love research. And I have read some interviews, you know, with you and your dad, and and I get the sense that you're you're a writer who writes with an outline, right? I don't. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, I I kind of I know the beginning of the story, and I I kind of know the end of the story, but how you get there is, is uh, the fun part. And uh, but I I don't yeah. outline. I uh, I just. Uh, do, do I, I think of just the way my dad did, and I write longhand on a lined yellow pad that somehow grounds it, you know, makes it more real, yeah. at least for me. I'm old school, so. Well, no, that's, that's, I, I agree with you, uh, and uh, I, I spent a month with Detroit Police Homicide and a month with the U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Forces in Detroit, San Diego, and El Centro, California. And you've oh, got to do that if you're writing, if you want your writing to sound authentic. And you clearly have done a lot of that yourself. I, I love, I love the research. I call it boots on the ground research, where it, you know, you start with, you know, reading books by the people who are in it, you know, books by police officers or FBI profilers or coroners or whatever. And so you get kind of grounded in the nomenclature so you can actually have an intelligent conversation with these people when you meet them in person. And then, and then I reach out to my network of people. And, and, and what I feel is that, um, you know, reading the books, reading books by professionals who are out there in the field, whether they be homicide detectives or uh, police officers. Um, I'm reading a book right now called Police Craft by a San Francisco police sergeant named Adam Platinga who's kind of a favorite of mine. He had a book before that called 400 Things Cops Know. You know, so you, so you really learn their world from their words. You learn the nomenclature so that you can actually have an intelligent conversation with these professionals. And then you go out into the world and you, and you set up interviews and you set up ride-alongs. Um, I, I love that. You know, I can, I can do research forever. On, on my second book, Beat, I spent six months you know, doing research and, and kind of every other weekend being embedded with the San Francisco Police Department without the media relations desk's knowledge, because that's where I discovered when I was trying to do the same thing for Boulevard at LAPD, I went to the media relations desk and they gave me one ride along and they said, okay, you're done now. 
So in San Francisco, I went in, I just met a, you know, a beat cop on North Beach and interviewed him. And he brought me back to the precinct and I met his sergeant, lieutenant, and captain. And, you know, and so for, that started like a six month process of me being up there every other weekend and just working with them, doing ride alongs, going to crime scenes and, and the details. I had about 100 pages of typed notes just from those guys. It's amazing. Uh, that I used maybe I used maybe two percent of that, you know, in the book. But what it does is it grounds you, you understand where the you know, where the boundaries are. You know, when you're when you're you don't have to make shit up. You know, it's just it's right. all there. You can just read the it, bag. Heard it. And I think yeah. the I would listen to the uh, rhythms of the their speeches, the detectives or the marshals, and yeah. you know, just the way they talk is, you know, pretty interesting. I spent uh, a week with a uh, female marshal, 26-year-old woman on the uh, task force in Detroit, and she was the lone female among these alpha males, guys who had been in law enforcement, combat marines, and so she stuck out. And mm. it was really interesting to ride with her. She was kind of a girlish girl, and we talked about just all kinds of different things, you know, music, food, movies. But when it came to a, a situation where she had to uh, react, she did and did it effortlessly. We were in a couple of high-speed chases going to wow. houses in East Detroit where a fugitive had shown up. And I wore a vest every day and I couldn't, you know, I yeah. thought that this is a job. I couldn't wait to get to work. It was really yeah. fun, fascinating, as I'm sure you uh, feel. I, I like exactly. So I was wondering if there's an age limit for getting into the San Francisco Police Department because I think it would be a very cool job to to be. But I only want to be at North Beach because you know the cops in North Beach. It's all like community policing. They're better known for just pointing out where the great restaurants are you know, to the tourists than anything. But as and they've and they've got incredible layered characters. I mean, my characters were very much enriched uh, in beat due to those officers that I met who were multi-layered, much, much deeper than I ever had thought of just looking at from the outside. You know, once you get in there, you know, it's cool. And it's funny, you mentioned the bulletproof vest. I'd spent so much time with these guys and I was in the car and there were some things that, you know, I was concerned about and all the officers around me had their vests and I didn't have a vest. And I knew that a fellow author named Marcus Saiti, I don't know if you know him, he's in Chicago, he yeah, goes out and does these things. And he has a vest, right? And so I knew that. So I was staying, I was with the sergeant at SFPD one time and who had no, come to know well then. And I said, you know, my friend in Chicago, when he does these things, he, he has a vest, you know, and I noticed that everyone that I'm with here in SFPD has a vest. So maybe I should get a vest. And uh, the sergeant looked at me and said, well, so if I get you a vest, that means that you'd be on the radar, you know, and have to like kind of go up the chain of command and, and, and suddenly become someone that everybody knew. And I said, say no more. I don't need a vest. <laughs> I'm good to go. <laughs> That's good. Uh, you know, it was interesting, too, uh, for me. Uh, I, I rode with this the supervisor on the task force in Detroit. He was the, the tough guy, and he was a former combat Marine. And he and I were driving on the freeway one day, and this guy, Ponch, as his nickname, he was on the phone looking at his computer that was on a, a pole in, in front of him, and he was driving. And wow. the car would drift off the, the left and right, and... Uh, I hear a horn honking behind us, and uh, you know, and I look back, and, and the car behind us pulls 
out alongside and comes on the driver's side and passes us. And the guy flips us off, uh, puts his hand through the the window and flips us off. And I, I was thinking, this is just so hilarious because here Ponch has a Glock 22 on his hip and he's got a yeah. uh, Remington 870 pump action shotgun in the back and uh, a trunk full of stuff. And, and I said, are you going to let him get away with that? And Ponch said, it's his lucky day. He should, he should buy a lottery ticket. He should go to the casino. And I just thought that was just <laughs> a great little interlude, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. It's such a interesting world. Have you ever read a book called, it's like from the sixties. It's called what cops know. No, um, that was one of the first books apparently that, um, was really kind of gritty and realistic. I think it was set in Chicago. I'm in Chicago cops. And when I first kind of started on this journey of researching police, police departments, that was recommended to me by a number of people. And, and, and uh, I think that gave a lot of other cops the courage to write what's really what's out there. But it was some like, I think it was the sixties or seventies. So it was kind of dated, you know, by the time I got to it, but it, but their lives haven't changed. I mean, it's still, it's still really, really tough stuff. Cops and firefighters, you know, see things that the rest of us just do not see. And their jobs are, um, they can't share a lot of this with their own, you know, family members and they have to keep it to themselves. And, you know, and, and they have to, you know, in, in the cultures that they man up and, you know, deal with it. And, and, and then there's consequences and they're really, again, it's, it's a rich, rich territory for someone like you and myself and all the other crime writers to get into, because this is a world that absolutely exists, but no one, no one really sees it. I don't know many job professions, paramedics, I'm sure too, have that kind of aspect to their lives. First responders. Those are, those are career choices that absolutely fascinate me. Decisions that have to be made. They're in the sense of the modern cowboys, you know, which is where, you know, it's going to make sense that that's where, where your dad almost started with the cowboy genre and then and then kind of moved into crime at all you know then it's cops and robbers right right Raylan is a modern day cowboy you're absolutely right and i remember going to uh, crime scenes when i was hanging out with homicide and i would report for duty every day at four o'clock i had a job at the time and in advertising as a owned an yeah, agency, yeah. but I was a copywriter. And uh, so I would report for work and I would talk to detectives and go through case files. And that was interesting. And then around 9.30 in the evening, the phone would start ringing and uh, a detective would say to me, Pete, get your coat. And uh, so we, you know, I put my coat on. It was really cold. It was February in Detroit. And yeah. Go, we'd go to a crime scene and, and see something so incredible, you know, for me, I, you know, just, it was amazing. Just the, you know, a, a dead body riddled with bullets yeah. and shell casings yeah. tagged on the ground around the body and just kind of the horrifying scene. But yeah. it was something, that's what these guys, you know, do every day. And uh, I'm sure they're somewhat used to it, but God. It's yeah, I guess they compartmentalize. You know, and I've never, I've never seen anything like that on a crime scene. I've, I've never actually walked onto a scene like that. I mean, the closest I got, and, and it was a hell of a crazy experience. Was just, you know, I spent a few hours in the L.A. coroner's uh, office, and the chief coroner investor, investigator gave me a, a tour and an interview, and you know, 300 bodies in the in the cooler, and then I saw like six different autopsies kind of being performed, 
in different rooms, you know, in front of me and, and, um, bodies all lined up in the hallways and some of them in you know, different conditions of molting and, you know, and, and, um, I pretty much saw kind of everything you can see in babies and, and burn victims and AIDS victims. And, and just, I, I, it, I, it, when I walked in there, I, I kind of was preparing myself for an experience, but I wasn't prepared to see that, that many bodies. And, and to me, I had to carve out like a portion of my brain to put this information into it because I had no reference point for it. You know, it was new information entirely and I had no <laughs> way of processing it. So I just kind of, I had to like carve out a certain part of my brain for this information to go into. And when I saw these bodies, they, they just looked like empty gloves. You know, they looked like something that you would put a soul into and then they would start animating the body. It looked, you know, it, it, what my reaction to it was very different. And then, and so I had written all these corner scenes in my book before that, and I had to go back and rewrite them all once I actually had that experience to try to capture, you know, what I physically saw in front of me. Yeah, it's unforgettable. Isn't it? I mean, you, you do try to put it in the back of your mind and not think about it, but uh, it's tough for a while anyway. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you a question because I know that you're taking Raylan, which is your dad's character, and you're, you're moving forward with him in, in your own novels, which is actually, you know, very similar to adapting you know, a novel for the screen or for a film, but in a much more insular way. I mean, you're, you're just continuing on this legacy. Are you, are you capturing uh, Elmer's voice or you, have you chosen to, to kind of use your own voice or a combination of the two? And how are you remaining true to that character in that world and still finding your own voice and being inventive and being pen Peter Leonard? I'm writing it from my point of view, my voice and my sound. And Raylan, in my book, uh, I, I bring him from Harlan County, Kentucky, after he has an altercation with his boss. I bring him to Detroit, uh, and uh, he has a, uh, I guess, his his boss or his his former boss goes to bat for him and says, "Look, we'll we'll take care of you. We'll reinstate you, but there's only one opening, and that's in Detroit." and from you know what I learned hanging with the marshals, nobody wanted to go to Detroit. Uh, yeah. I, I read an article in the New York Times about the worst cities in the world, and uh, Detroit was number two after Baghdad. And, oh, okay. and so Raylan comes to Detroit, and uh, he's wearing a hat. He's wearing his Stetson, and uh, and his partner says, "We don't wear hats like that in Detroit. If you know, if you're wearing that, you're either going to a rodeo." or uh, a costume party. So Raylan takes mm -hmm. his hat, throws it in the back seat, but then his travels take him uh, to the West, to Arizona, where, uh, where he is in pursuit of a fugitive and he can bring his hat back. So, But I believe that keeping Raylan alive, part of it is a you know sort of a tribute to my dad who died in 2013. And yeah. The, the reason I, I thought uh, you know, it was okay to do it is because of the TV show Justified. A number of writers under the direction of Graham Yost, the showrunner, you know, worked on this. They, they kept Raylan going for six seasons, so I thought, I'll take my shot at it. And so yeah. that's how it kind of came about. That's great. So have, have you had any – has there been any interest in, in, in for uh, maybe a feature film? Right? Do, do you see – Taking Raylan into that, or do you see doing I, one of your original novels? 
Mm-hmm. It's written in scenes. I mean, they, I I see it as a movie. It's okay. It's just a matter of you know. I I know Tim Oliphant. I mean, he actually came to my dad's funeral, and I've talked. I talk to him occasionally, trying to get him involved yeah. in another series. But I have not given him a copy of the book, and uh, so I want to do that at some point. I could see that happening. Actually, I can see it going from you know the popular series or the book series, and then into the Justified TV series, which was very popular, and um, and then either coming back as a series or a limited series, or you know a a, a feature for you know for streaming services or, or television, or as a feature film too. I mean, it is in in a sense, it is a brand now, and it has established an established fan base and then success. And, you know, it's something I can see, especially if you have Tim involved, that you could back and move forward. Well, well you never know. I mean, Hollywood is, you know, like William Goldman says, nobody knows anything, right? So, <laughs> right. Uh, you know. I, I see it as a perhaps a limited series, like The Night Manager, yeah. um, uh, yeah. Little Drummer Girl. You know, that could work, too. You have a little more time to develop the story. And uh, yeah. uh, you mentioned William Goldman. I uh, had dinner with him along with father and a few other people uh, one night in New York, and uh, I'd read uh, Marathon Man and, of course, you know, saw Butch Cassidy and you know, many of his other movies, and so I said, what's it like dealing with Hollywood? He said, he said nobody tells the truth. He said, they look yeah. you in the face and lie, <laughs> and, yeah. Just, yeah. and he said in all seriousness, and he said, it's just awful. The actors are tough to work with, and it was just a ter- it's terrible, but it's lucrative, and uh, he certainly uh, made some money. Yeah, that is, I, I'm actually doing a lecture um, at uh, UC Riverside uh, this Friday, and, and one of my slides in there is that, you know, if you're, if, if you have a producer, and the producer is telling you, you know, we're going to make your film into a very successful TV series or a very f- successful feature film. Don't worry, it's, you know, we, we got it in the bag. That he's either lying to you or lying to himself or both. And <laughs> <laughs> just don't work with that person. Work with the producer that says, well, you know what, we've got a really solid property here. We think we can get some, um, some great attachments. Um, I think we might have a shot at, at getting this off the ground. That's the kind of person you want to work with. Yeah, that sounds more realistic, of course. Yeah. Now, I, huh. you know, of course, read that you are mu- musically inclined and, you know, once wow. thought of being a music- musician. And I was reading, I think it was Boulevard, and I wrote this line down because this sounds like a musician could have written it. Seven yeah. or eight thrusts with a nine-inch blade, then a cello stroke to the throat. The cello yeah. stroke, that, that's <laughs> a good one. You You, you picked out, like, probably my favorite line in the whole book. So thank really? you for that too. Well, but yeah, that is, that is, you know, I did, I studied music, you know, growing up as a kid and I spent a, a year at a, a jazz school playing, playing saxophone and kind of thought I was going to follow that direction. And, and the best thing that I really got out of music was, was an ear. And, uh, and I actually, I, when I got my MFA, my, my, I did my, um, my lecture MFA lecture on the musicality of writing. I would actually take sentences, you know, in different novels and and diagram them musically in measures and beats and triplets and, and staccato and and legato and 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 you know take poetry and you know, T. S. Eliot and and all the way through Kerouac's work and 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 just kind of showed how 
if you have a sense of rhythm in your head when you're writing a sentence, when you write a sentence, you're writing a rhythm. You know, you're not writing a melody, but you're definitely writing a rhythm. And a, you know, I, I examined sentences that kind of were run-on sentences that didn't pay any attention to this rhythm, and they didn't come out easily, they didn't read well, they didn't read well in your mind. But if you have a sense of musicality when you write, you can write a, a short sentence, another short sentence, and then a long legato sentence, and then cap it off with a short sentence, and, and you've kind of written a musical phrase. That sounds like know? my father talking, I swear. He, he really? would say, yes, something very similar to that. Uh, interesting. I, I, I wish I could have sat down uh, with you and your dad for dinner some night and, and had these conversations. Um, that would have been a lot of fun. I miss, you know, there are people who have passed on that I'm so sad that I haven't had the opportunity to meet. You know, I look at someone passes away and I think, God, why didn't I get a chance to meet, you know, John Updike or um, Philip right. Roth or, you know, whomever. And, yeah. you know, uh, and, and Charles Bukowski, you know, he's a, I, I love his work. And, and I was alive, you know, while they were alive and, and I wasn't always, you know, always uh, aware of the fact that I could be somewhere where they were and, and just have a moment. And I got to meet Timothy Leary and I got to meet Chuck Palahniuk a couple of times. And, you know, I'm trying to catch up a little bit, but the, the, the great old guys are, are disappearing, you know, right and left, unfortunately. Who influenced you? What writer? I was going to ask you the same thing. So, and, and I will, I want to hear what you say, but uh, I, Bukowski, Charles Bukowski is definitely, uh, when I, when I start to lose a sense of kind of who I am, I go back and read Bukowski novels uh, and poetry, especially his novels, um, which are just very tight and clean and no bullshit. This is a writer who never, ever compromised. He did whatever the hell he wanted to write, regardless of what people thought of him. He didn't care what people thought of him or his writing, and he just wrote. And And I love his work. Ham on Rye is a great you know novel that I love. Um, he also introduced me you know, through his writing. He introduced me to John Fonte. John Fonte is a wonderful writer. There's a book called um, Brotherhood of the Grape, which is probably my favorite Fonte novel. Um, Jim Thompson. So if you're talking like mystery thriller guys, yeah, he's, he's a big read most of his work. Um, your dad, Elmer Leonard, um, Out of Sight. That is a fucking brilliant example of character development through dialogue. I mean, that book is mostly dialogue. And I've never just, I've never seen such plot and action and character coming out of just what is mostly dialogue. You know, it's almost like a play. And then the adaptation, I thought that was a beautiful adaptation. That was one of the few times when I felt an adaptation really complimented the, the original work, you know. Uh, Agreed, Steve yeah. Soderberg, that, ah, that was great. And Dinebeck and Jack London and, you know, there's, these are, I, I like the, tw you know, early 20th century uh, authors a lot. And I, I tend to be, you know, I think it, you can see from Boulevard, there's more of a fiction element than a pop kind of element because I really try to try to reference back to to that kind of writing. So who were who were your influences? Jim Townsend, James M. Kane, Postman Always Rings Twice, George yeah. V. Higgins, Friends of Eddie Coyle, mm -hmm. uh, Lauren Block, read a lot of Block. I mean, he, how many novels does he have? 30, 40? Oh. Uh, James Lee Burke, his early stuff, Heaven's Prisoners, uh, his, his detective, uh, Dave Robichaux, I think is really good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Ed Bain, the 87th Precinct uh, Mistress, you know, God. Yeah. Uh, Graham yeah. yeah, you're... Who, I'm sorry? Graham Greene. Oh, British, sure. Right, third man. Uh, and Steinbeck, and, and I have a quote here from Steinbeck. 
He said he wanted to hear how someone talked. That would tell him what he needed to know about the character. And uh, I think, you know, my father adopted that philosophy. Yeah. But that's, you know, yeah. I mean, and I thought um, the uh, Day of the Jackal was great, Frederick Forsythe, and, you know, and many others. Yeah. That's just a few. Uh, to, you, you, remind me of, you remind me of how much more I've yet to read. Like, I haven't really read James Lee Burke, and I think I read just one Ed Bain novel. Um so, yeah, there's so much good stuff that that there's, I've yet to, to you know sink into, dive into. I was lucky because my father would give me uh, books, you know, sent to him. He was friends with John D. McDonald and Ed McBain, mm-hmm. and so you know he would he would get a book and read it and hand it to me and say, "Hey, check this out. It's really good." Yeah, that's interesting. You know, there's there's another book that's a little bit out of. Yeah, it's definitely not in the mystery thriller genre. But it's a favorite of mine. It's, uh, it's Chuck Palahniuk's book, Fight Club. I don't know if you ever got had. Oh yeah, that's yeah, a movie. Yeah, said, good. read the book if you get a chance, because the book, everything that's beautiful and that works well in the movie, comes from the book and is is even better in the book. I mean, it's, it's amazing writing, and it's kind of a minimal. He's a minimalistic writer and sharp and funny, and that. And for me, that's his best book. I mean, I've read a number of his books, and and really nothing compares to Fight Club. And that's another one of the books that I'll go back and reread when I start to kind of feel like I'm drifting and I want to get a little bit centered. So um, definitely recommend that one. Do you have a uh, writing process? Do you, uh, how do you do it? It's pretty scattergun right now. I mean, when I, when I, if I have nothing else to do, but I don't have to juggle a day job and the things that I you know do in my life, the times that I've been able to just write full time would put in like a 12 hour day where I, I'd do four three-hour shifts, and if I couldn't do that, I'd do two three uh, two four-hour shifts. So, um, I'm sorry, it'd be three three four-hour shifts, yeah, or two four-hour shifts. But um, what I'd do is I, you know, I'd go to a cafe. I have to read. I have to write in a cafe. I can't write at home. I can't write in a library. So I go to a cafe. I kind of need that vibrancy, that excitement. You know, people doing things around me, and then I'll spend you know four hours in the morning. And you know, the first hour I'm just kind of getting started. The next two hours, I'm I'm writing pretty well. Uh, the fourth hour, I'm falling apart. And I go, I take a lunch, take a break, take a walk, go in for the second shift, do the same thing. And if I'm really, you know, if I've really got some uh, strength in me, um, then I'll do a, the third four-hour shift that'll take me to like you know one o'clock in the morning or so. Wow! Um, and that was that was great. I, I that's called total immersion. All you're doing every day, every moment of the day is thinking about your story and you're dreaming about your story and you're you're working it and it it's, it was a great feeling and I haven't had that for many many years because I've had to juggle you know day jobs and, and my family and some teaching and going back to school and all these things and so now it's just I do what I can when I get to a cafe and I can sit down and concentrate um, and, I, and I'm struggling with it now you know I want to get back to those those glory days what what is how how do you do your process I. Uh get up in the morning and uh, either go to a club and work out for 45 minutes and then come home and Good drink for coffee. <laughs> Good for you. Late, late morning. Yeah. It's, you know, it, it gives me energy and I sit, you know, pretty much the whole day. I have a light lunch and then uh, go to five and uh, quit and uh, read or watch TV, watch the news, which is pretty fascinating these days. And, uh, yeah. Go to bed and do it again. And I find it so interesting that what I wrote the day before, looking back, it's, it's it sounded great 
when I wrote it, but now it isn't so yeah. great. And, you know, writing yeah. is writing. And uh, it's yeah. so I thought I read something about you. Your first book was 100,000 words and, and you re redid it and it, it was 85,000, something like that. And that's yeah. what happened yeah. to me. I, I just tighten it and tighten it until, you know, I, I just can't look at it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's easier to, to overwrite it and then tighten it than it is to write short and then have to kind of fill it in, you know. So you can always tighten. That's one thing that I've learned in both film and, and in, in writing novels that you can tighten, 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 you know. It's almost no, it's never ending the process of being able to tighten something, you know, until it's ready. And then when you have a good editor and a good editor's eye, then you have that outside, outside point of view. Do you, do you work with the same editor in, in all your your novels? No, I've had uh, God, four or five, and uh, I, I the uh, guy in Tosi at uh, Rare Bird was excellent. You know, he was one of the best, if not the best, editor. Great. Yeah, he was terrific. Yeah, yeah. I haven't, haven't had that opportunity um, because my collection is you know um, uh, it's it's nonfiction. Um, but the you know when I worked on my my two novels, I, I did. I had a wonderful author, uh, editor at Tor Forge, and um, and it was a very interesting experience. It's kind of funny because he was he was a bit of a drinker, and he would just disappear for for a certain amount of time, for like weeks at a time. And I was like the responsible one, and I'm like, oh, where's my editor? You know, like, <laughs> the roles have been reversed here. This is not right. You know, the editor's supposed to be chasing me down, finding me in some back alley, you know, with the thunderbird exactly. in my hand and putting you know, some pressure on me. And just, yeah, I'm like, oh, why do I have to be this responsible one? You know, right. Um, but he was great. He had a great eye, and he was able to, you know, a great editor is able to kind of see what you really want to say and cut through the bullshit and offer suggestions, have ideas, and, and, and basically say, you know what? I mean, I had this, you know, in, in Boulevard, I had this, like, 40-page section of just, like, almost uh, stream-of-consciousness writing that I loved. It was, like, some of my favorite writing I've ever written. It's about Hayden Glass kind of in his early years when he was a young guy and he's a sex addict and he doesn't realize he's a sex addict and he's just traveling across the country and he's you know, meeting different women in different places and, you know, sleeping with them. And, and it just kind of wraps up everything in his life. And then it takes him kind of in the present where he's got problems in his marriage and he's having to do a, a lie detector test that his wife's making him do and all. And, and, and it's like a 40 page thing and sold the book, you know, worked with my editor on, on the whole book. And then at a certain point, my editor said, okay, now we have to deal with that 40 page section. And so what do you mean we have to deal with this? It's way too long. It's like something that doesn't belong in the middle of a mystery thriller. It's like, you got to deal with it. And I said, I said, I'm not going to change it. I said, it's like my favorite writing I've ever done. And he said, he said, you can't have it there. And so he suggested, he said, well, you know, I came to this point in reading it about the halfway point where I feel like it, it breaks. And then, and then there's like a break there. And you, if you were to take those, separate them, put them in separate chapters, tighten them up a bit and take them, the character, you know, from the present into this memory and then bring them back into a present scene, you might be able to make it work. And, and he was right. I, I, I did exactly what he said, and I was able to keep all of the stuff that I loved, tightened it up by maybe you know five or seven pages, broke it into two different scenes, and it and it and it and it doesn't. I mean, it it slows the pace a little bit, but I think it's necessary to really understand that character in those sections. That's good. Yeah, that's that's yeah. You you don't see it, and the editor that's his job to uh, to look at the novel and. Yeah, that sounds like something my father would say too. Uh, <laughs> You're I, killing I, me. 
I had an opening uh, for for a book, and he said, uh, "You got too much backstory on the char- main character." He said, "Just put a little there," and he said, "Sprinkle the rest of it through the through the novel." And of course, yeah. he was right. That's good. Stuff. I mean, it's and it's hard to capture that. That's a, that's the real craft that's involved is to is to give a, a brush stroke to a character in the in the introduction. And through the course of several more chapters, fill in the blanks so that the reader, and I've been fooled like this before, manipulated like this before in a good way, you know, where, where as I read and I read and I read, you know, I'll be a third of the way through the novel before I really get the full picture of that character. And I thought, wow, that was subtle. You know, that was beautiful. It just came naturally in a way, you know, that was, that let me feel the author is, had noses or her craft and they've got control, and I can sit back and relax and just enjoy the ride. Yeah, that's good. It's rare. Very. It's rare to find it. But when you find, when you find writers that can do that and it gets natural to them, those are the kind of stuff I like to write. I like to read, you know, and, and, and to be influenced in my writing, too. What I have is I've got a photograph of my father uh, behind my, me, and, and I'm actually writing on his former desk. The photo was shot mm-hmm. by Annie Leibowitz for a uh American Express ad, and so when I'm writing, I can hear, and I do something wrong, I hear my father saying, if it sounds like writing, rewrite it. And uh, Right. Yes. That was like in his book of, of tips, right? Right. Or book yeah. of exactly. tips. Yeah. Ten rules. Yeah. Great talking to you. I think... Uh, Are we done? We're right. I, I, don't up. The, I don't see the cues. I figure we'll probably have to wrap up. Yeah. Hey, Peter... Listen, it was really great talking to you, and thank you for being so prepared and, and, and having read through some of my stuff. I really, really appreciate that. And uh, I, I hope to continue this conversation just you and me on, on our own sometime, too. I would love that. Next time I come to L.A., perhaps we get together. By the way, I did read uh, Hollywood versus the Author. Excellent. Well done. Thank, thank you, sir. <laughs> well, when we next time we get together, I'll have read um, some of your novels too. So uh, sure, right. I, that's my bad. And, and uh, no problem. Really. It, and let's take your, and let's, take let's definitely get together. Yeah, Great. Let's have, let's have dinner when you come out. Excellent. Thanks. Take care, thank you very much, Steve.